Jesus rich. And so James describes people who were very wealthy, but they were also ruthless. They were merciless in their approach to their wealth. They used their wealth and power against the poor. They used their wealth and their power exclusively for their own comfort. I want you to think carefully with me about what James is doing. He's actually speaking to people who are outside of the believing community. These are not Christians who are a little bit materialistic. These were non-Christians. They had no devotion to God. Why would James address people who would probably never hear his voice? Why would James devote the time to talk to people who were outside of his influence since they weren't part of the believing community? Uh, You see this in the Old Testament as well. The prophets talked to kings of nations that would never hear their voices. Well, the obvious answer, I think, is that these passages were written for the benefit of those who were part of the believing community, those who were devoted to God and responsive to him. And so God wanted these denunciations to teach them and us something essential about wealth and how we should use it. And so we're going to first consider what James teaches about the the ruthless rich. I'm going to use that word about 25 times, use it in a sentence this week. Uh, He's going to talk about the ruthless rich, and then I'm going to suggest a couple of lessons for us, a couple of takeaways for us. In verses 1 through 3, James describes the great reversal that will overtake the rich. In Matthew 20, verse 16, Jesus said, the last shall be first, and the first last. That's what James describes in these verses. And James does something in these verses that the biblical authors do quite regularly, actually. Uh, They challenge us to a vision a day when we come face-to-face with God himself, and then they challenge us to live accordingly. And that's hard to do. Sometimes it's hard to look past today, much less to look past this entire lifetime to the time when we are accountable for, uh, to God for everything we've done on earth. But James has the ruthless rich anticipate that day uh, and, and uh, what they've done in this life. And so we read in verse 1, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. As we'll see later in this passage, these are people who currently were living lives that were devoid of misery. They were living in luxury and self-indulgence. And James tells them that if they understood uh, the judgment that awaited them, they would weep and howl and cry in remorse. In verses 2 and 3, James zooms forward to the day when these miseries have overtaken them. And he uses the past tense to stress really the certainty of this misery. He says this, your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. This is a pretty brutal passage, isn't it? He says, you have laid up treasure in these last days. And so in retrospect, they will see that they have embodied the exact opposite of what Jesus taught. I want us to look briefly at Matthew 6, verses 19 and 20. This is what Jesus taught his disciples. We'll come back to James 5 shortly. Let's see if this sounds a little bit familiar in light of what we just read. Jesus says to his disciples, do not lay up for yourselves treasure on earth where moth and rust 
destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. And so from Jesus' perspective, laying up treasures on earth exclusively for yourself, it simply is not a good investment. Since earthly treasures that can be eaten by bugs and destroyed by rust and and stolen by thieves, uh, then that's not a great investment. Plus, there's the reality that one day we will all leave this world. We entered this world penniless. We will leave this world penniless. And so there will come a day when every single person alive has nothing material to show for all the years of working and saving and investing. And so that's the bad news. The good news, and this is good news to be uh, embraced, not bad news that we grudgingly accept, accept. The good news is that there is an alternative to laying up treasures on earth, namely laying up treasure in heaven. And this involves using our material resources for heavenly purposes, for God's purposes, and for others, instead of merely storing up treasure for ourselves. And I could give a hundred examples of what this looks like. And I'm going to encourage us to be creative in this in, in, in a few minutes. But this would include giving directly to the poor. It would include supporting the mission of the church. It would include showing hospitality to people who have no prospect of repaying us. It would involve supporting those that take the gospel to the nations. It would involve supporting organizations and efforts to help the least of these in our community and around the world. And so when you make such investments, uh, you are storing up treasures that cannot be destroyed by bugs. They won't be corroded by rust. They are unaffected by a 1,200-point drop in the Dow. Okay, these investments are untouchable. As a matter of fact, these are investments that will endure past this life and they will somehow be remembered and even rewarded in the next life. We aren't told exactly how that happens, but we're told it over and over in Scripture. Last week when we read Revelation 5, I don't know if you noticed this, but John saw a heavenly vision in which golden bowls of incense, then contain golden bowls of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And so prayer apparently is one of those investments that is remembered in heaven long after our cars and our homes and our clothes are a distant memory. In a similar way, the investments that we make with our earthly goods our financial and material resources, uh, they, are, they are, are, are investments that will endure into the next life. If you look back at James 5 and you look at verses 2 and 3 in light of Jesus' teaching, we have to conclude that the ruthless rich are not very smart. They are not very wise. For starters, in verse 3, James says that their useless gold and silver It will be evidence against them when they stand before the court of heaven. Their unused wealth will testify against them. Instead of being used for God's kingdom and God's righteousness, instead of being like a cup of cold water to someone in need, their riches have rotted in storage. They were wasted. 
As well, he says that their useless gold and silver, quote, will eat your flesh like fire. And I think that's just a poetic way of saying that the greed of the greedy poisons them. Furthermore, he says, you have laid up treasures on earth in the last days. And that's a signal. That's a signal that that they were doing something they never should do in the last days. Everybody living since the resurrection of Jesus is living in the last days. We're living in the last chapter of history before the return of Christ and before all things are remade. And so the New Testament consistently urges us to live soberly and expectantly in these last days instead of carelessly and indulgently. And this perspective involves seeing our, 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 our wealth as something over which we are to steward, something entrusted to us for a a finite period of time for the master's purposes, not something that we own in an absolute sense to be used selfishly. And so in these verses, James says what the rest of the scripture declares, one day a great reversal will take place and it will overtake the ruthless rich. In verses three through six, uh, we see these, these sins, four through six, we see these sins enumerated. Some of the ways they have misused their wealth. Verse four, behold the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. And so these were wealthy landowners who weren't paying their laborers at the end of the day. And these were laborers that needed their daily wages for their daily bread. And he uses striking imagery there when he says the cry of the withheld wages. And so it's like these wages are crying out to God. And the cry of the laborers themselves, they reach the ears of who? Of the Lord of hosts. And that's the way the Old Testament talked about God. He's the God of angel armies. He has this whole host of angelic beings that form this, these warriors that do his will, that avenge those who, who uh, hate him and rebel against him. And whereas the ruthless rich have deprived others of what is rightly there, rightfully theirs, they don't deprive themselves of anything that they desired. In verse 5. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. And so this isn't an uh, an indictment necessarily of wealth itself, but it's an indictment of how they used their wealth. They lived in luxury and self-indulgence. And this reminds us of the parable that Jesus told. It's recorded in Luke 16. It's about the rich man and Lazarus, and that's a fascinating parable because the rich man has no name, but the poor man, Lazarus, he's named and he's with God. And in this life, the rich man didn't deny himself anything he desired. He, he lived in, in great luxury and self-indulgence, uh, whereas the poor man, Lazarus, he was covered in sores and he was, was hungry, and the rich man refused to help him in any way. And true to form, in Jesus' parable, the circumstances were reversed when they died. The rich man, this nameless rich man, was in torment in hell, and the poor man was named Lazarus in the presence of Abraham. 
In the last line of verse 5, he says, you have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. It's very likely James is saying that this, uh, their self-indulgence is akin to fattening, fattening up an animal before it's slaughtered, just as oxen might eat greedily, unaware of what awaited them. The ruthless rich were oblivious to the judgment that awaited them. Verse 6, you have condemned and murdered the righteous person. It's likely figuratively. They condemned them to hunger by not paying them. They murdered them in the sense that, uh, that they wronged them uh, to a point of putting their lives in peril. In the last line he says, he does not resist you. There's probably a reference there to the helplessness of the poor in that day and many times in ours as well. And so James declares here very boldly, very strongly, uh, very graphically that the sins of the ruthless rich do not escape the notice of God. And therefore, a great reversal will one day overtake them. So I don't know what what that passage stirs up in your heart and in your mind. But I want to ask the question, what do we learn from a passage like this? Those of us who follow Jesus, those of us who have been bought with a price, those of us who comprise the temple of the Holy Spirit, uh, how should this passage instruct us? I'd like to suggest a couple of complementary lessons that reflect what the Bible says more broadly about money and about wealth. And the first is this, do not envy the ruthless rich. Do not envy the ruthless rich. Quite honestly, that's a temptation, isn't it? It was certainly a temptation in the the days of the Bible, both the Old and the New Testament, and it is a temptation for us. Sometimes we look, look around at people who live lives of luxury and self-indulgent and just blatantly sinful lifestyles. And sometimes we find ourselves wondering, you know, I wonder if it's really worth it to honor God when it comes to my, fill in the blank there, when it comes to my wealth, when it comes to my sexuality, when it comes to my relationship. When it comes to my desire for revenge, when it comes to the words I speak, I wonder if it's really worth it to honor God. It looks like other people just indulge themselves in all sorts of ways and there are no consequences. And so we feel that. We, we think that sometimes. But what the Bible does is like, it's like the Wizard of Oz. It pulls back the curtain and the Bible shows us what's really true of the ruthless rich or any other indulgent lifestyle. We're seeing this morning in James 5 how this great reversal will overtake them. Psalm 73 is one of my favorite psalms, and it it gives this same perspective in a very persuasive way. Here's how Asaph described his crisis of faith. We're in Psalm 73, verses 1 through 3. Asaph says, surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. That's where he ended up. That was his his ultimate final conclusion. But, he says in verse 2, as for me, my feet came close to stumbling. 
My steps had almost slipped. Why? For I was envious of the arrogant as I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Read the whole psalm when you have the chance. But Asaph described how he came this close to concluding that it wasn't worth it to keep your heart pure. He looked at the the arrogance of the wicked and the prosperity of the wicked, and he almost concluded their life is better than my life. What they're pursuing is better than what I'm pursuing. That the fruit of a life of self-discipline and self-denial and and seeking God is just not worth it. We skip on down to verses 16 and 17, and we see the turning point in Asaph's mind. He says, when I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight. And maybe you've been troubled over this at times. He says, it was troublesome in my sight until I came into the sanctuary of God, and then I perceived their end. When he came into the presence of God, his thinking and his sight became crystal clear. He came to see that the one that one day the wicked would experience great ruin, ruin, and it would come suddenly and irreversibly. And every single one of us needs to get to the same place. And I have to tell you, as much as I believe in preaching, listening to a sermon about this great reversal will not change your heart. The only thing that will change your heart is to get into the presence of God and linger there. Get in the presence of God. Bring your troubled heart, your conflicted mind. Bring him your thoughts. God, I don't know if it's worth it to keep my heart pure when it comes to money or sex or any number of different things. And you linger in the presence of God. Let God open your mind and your eyes Let him show you what Psalm 32.10 says, many are the sorrows of the wicked. Let him convince you on a heart level that it is worth it to keep your, your heart pure. And that's true when it comes to money. It's true when it comes to every area in our lives. And so do not envy the ruthless rich. Let me suggest a second lesson from this passage. In addition to not envying Uh, the ruthless rich, go as far as possible in the opposite direction. Why? Because we can. Because it's a life of joy. I say it this way. Pursue a joyful, creative, wholehearted lifestyle of generosity. This is the lifestyle that was reflected in the giving liturgy that we did earlier because God has been so generous to us in every way, but especially in our salvation. He sent his unique son on our behalf because God has been so generous to us. We can be generous to others. We can afford to be generous to others. And so biblically speaking, whatever wealth you have was given to you by God. Even if you worked very hard for a very long time for everything you have, everything you have was given to you by God. Psalm 24.1 says, the earth is the Lord's and all it contains. And so if you have anything in your hands, it's because the God who owns it has put it in your hands. If we don't get ownership right, we'll never get stewardship right. Among other things, this means that we should honor God not just with the 10% or 20% or 30% we give away. We should honor God with 100% of what he's given us. What we spend, what we save and invest, 
and what we give. They all need to be evaluated together. And it's interesting, in the Old Covenant, Israel was given very specific laws about giving. You know what we're given in the New Covenant? We're given the Spirit of God to lead us in our spending and saving and giving. And so we need to invite the Holy Spirit to lead us, first of all, in our spending, in the lifestyle. And standards of living are are very relative. And my standard of living is somewhat modest compared to some others. Having said that, my standard of living is many times higher than most of the people who have ever lived on earth. I don't say that to guilt myself or shame. I just say that facts are your friends. We need to understand. We need to have a perspective about the the lifestyle that God has given us. And so we saw that the ruthless rich, they were self-indulgent in their wealth. The Holy Spirit can lead us in God-honoring spending. We need the Holy Spirit to lead us when it comes to saving and investing. We saw that the ruthless rich hoarded their riches, and it ended up being wasted. We need the Spirit to lead us so that we save without hoarding our wealth to the detriment of our own souls and to the detriment of those who could be helped by our wealth. The Holy Spirit can lead us into God-honoring saving. And then we got spending, saving. We need to invite the Holy Spirit to lead us in our giving. Why wouldn't we do this if we've allowed the Holy Spirit to lead us in our spending and our saving? Okay, God, how do you want me to how do you want to lead me in terms of my giving? And instead of thinking, okay, what's the minimum I need to give here so I don't feel guilty anymore? I, I just submit to you that that is such a subpar, sub-Christian way to think about it. We hold everything we have with open hands, and we say, God, you have blessed me. You have been generous to me. How do you want me to use what you own and what you have entrusted to me for a brief period of time? And some of you find great delight. You find great joy in giving. Some of you gave away your $1,200 COVID check for the benefit of others. You didn't have to. It was yours. You could do with it whatever you want. But you said, you know, God has blessed me. I want to bless others with this check. And so that's laying up treasures in heaven. I want to lead us in a prayer. And it is our heart here at Faith that we honor God with everything, everything he's given us. Our words, our walk with God, the gospel, and our material resources. So I'm going to pray a prayer. And I would encourage you, you may need to pray this prayer by faith, but I would encourage you to pray along with me from the heart because God has been generous to us. We can be generous to others. And so, Heavenly Father, we come to you now and we acknowledge that sometimes we are envious of those who have more than we do. Sometimes we are not content with what we have. God, whether we have a little or a lot, we can be envious. And so, God, we hold everything we own with open hands. Uh, Everything we have in our hands, you have placed there. And, God, we pray you would lead us in terms of our spending, our lifestyle, in terms of our saving and investing, and in terms of our giving. God, we want all of it to honor you. 
God, when we think about the day when we will see Jesus face to face, we don't want to look back with regret. God, we don't know how all that's going to happen, but God, we don't want to look back with regret. We want to anticipate that day and live our lives here and now in a way that's consistent with that day and see things somewhat as clear a way as we will see it then. And so open our eyes, open our minds. God, may we find our greatest delight in you, and therefore may we honor you with everything that we have. God, we could never pull this off on our own, so we ask that your spirit would lead us and empower us. May we find great joy in these things. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. of grace is Jesus my redeemer there is no more for heaven now to give he is my joy my righteousness and freedom my steadfast love my deep and boundless peace to this I hold my hope is only Jesus, for my life is wholly bound to His. Oh, how strange and divine I can sing. All is mine, yet not I, but through Christ in me. forsaken for by my side the Savior he will stay I labor on in weakness and rejoicing for in my need his power is displayed to this I hope my shepherd will defend me Sure, the price it has been paid for Jesus' blood and suffered for my pardon, and he was raised to overthrow the grave. To this I hold my sin has been defeated. 
to follow Jesus For he has said that he will bring me home And day by day I know he will renew me Until I stand with joy you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up your countenance and mercy upon you. In Jesus' name, amen.
My family had a cool book growing up. It was full of pictures that looked abstract at first glance. Abstract means that something doesn't really look like the thing that it's supposed to represent. For example, if I made this painting and told you it depicts a winter wonderland, you might think I was a little crazy. But because it's abstract, it doesn't have to be realistic. Back to the book I had growing up. At first glance, it was full of abstract pictures. But if you looked in just the right way, a 3D image would jump off the page. These pictures are called stereograms. Would you like to see one? Awesome. If you see the hidden picture, don't yell out what it is so that everyone else has a chance to find it too. Here it is. What did you see? If you saw a horse, you are right. At first, I remember being frustrated by the book because I couldn't see the hidden pictures. Maybe you feel that way about the horse right now. But then someone taught me how to look at the pictures a little differently. They told me if I'd cross my eyes just a little, then all of a sudden I could see the hidden pictures. Would you like another chance to try to see the horse? Okay, here you go. Even if you didn't see it, don't worry. Seeing the hidden pictures is very hard to do on a screen. This month and next month, we're talking about faith. Faith is trusting in what you can't see because of what you can see. Today's story is about a man who started looking at Jesus in a different way than he first did and realized he had missed the big picture. Let's take a listen. Hello, friends. Today, we get to talk about a really important person who actually wrote most of what we call the New Testament of the Bible. You might know him by the name Paul, but he also went by the name Saul. For today, we'll call him Saul. Why, hi, Saul. As a young man, Saul was sent to Jerusalem to study with the famous rabbi Gamaliel. For Saul, his faith was important. For Saul, his faith was important, but Jesus was changing the way everyone thought about God, and Saul found himself right in the middle of it. He watched as more and more people started to believe that Jesus really is the Son of God. After his studying, Saul became a religious leader himself, and boy did he think he was pretty smart. Like the other religious leaders of his time, Saul was caught off guard by Jesus. Jesus had been crucified on a cross, but now his followers were saying that Jesus had returned to life and that they had actually seen him? This didn't make any sense to Saul. He and the other religious leaders were upset that the number of Jesus followers continued to grow. 
In fact, they did everything that they could to stop this new movement. They even arrested a Jesus follower named Stephen on the awful day when Stephen was killed. Saul was there. He held the coats of the people who were there. Saul held the coats of the people who were there throwing stones at Stephen. As you can see, Saul wasn't someone we'd call a good guy. It seemed like Saul and the Jesus followers would never be on the same team. In fact, Saul became known for hunting people down who believed in Jesus. One day, he discovered that some Jewish people in Damascus were following Jesus. So he went to the high priest, Caiaphas, to see if he could go to Damascus and investigate. Saul asked Caiaphas for letters that he could take to the synagogues in Damascus. Synagogues were basically churches where the Jews gathered to talk about and practice their faith. Saul wanted these letters so that he would be able to arrest the believers and bring them back to Jerusalem. Caiaphas gave him the letters and Saul set off with a group of men to arrest any believers they found. After many days on the road, they finally neared Damascus. Suddenly, a light from heaven flashed around Saul and he fell to the ground. Now imagine that this whole room is completely full of light. It's so bright. You can't see anything. You have to cover your eyes. After Saul fell to the ground, he heard a loud voice. Saul, Saul, why are you opposing me? Saul replied, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus. I am the one you are opposing. Now get up and go into the city. There you will be told what you must do. Saul must have been like, did that really just happen? The men traveling with Saul stood there, unable to even speak. Saul got up, but he couldn't see. His friends led him by hand into the city of Damascus, where he stayed at the home of a man named Judas on Straight Street. For three whole days, Saul was blind. He didn't eat or drink anything. Saul couldn't deny it. He had a direct encounter with Jesus. He had seen for himself that Jesus is very much alive. Could it be that everything Jesus' followers believed was actually true? Was Jesus actually the son of God? Had Saul been wrong about him this whole time? Everything about Saul's life dramatically changed that day. Even though he was now physically blind, he was able to see everything in a completely new way because of Jesus. So, what should we learn from this? We should learn that knowing Jesus changes the way we see everything. Everything that Saul thought he knew about Jesus changed that day. He would never be the same. I personally like abstract art. I like to be able to look for the hidden meanings in things. Yet, when it comes to Jesus, we can be thankful that things aren't hidden. 
the Bible tells us exactly who Jesus is and what he came to do for us. Knowing Jesus changes the way we see everything. That's today's bottom line. Knowing Jesus changes the way we see everything. It may mean when we do something really good, instead of becoming boastful and rude to those who were not as good, we can instead be grateful for the talents God has given us in humility. Or when something doesn't go the way that we hoped it would go, we can take heart in the fact that God has a bigger plan than whatever is going on in the here and now. Knowing Jesus gives us great perspective on the good and hard things in life. Would you pray with me? Jesus, thank you for the ability to have faith. Even though we can't see you or touch you, thank you for the ability to know that you are working in this world and that your big plan is a good plan. We know that when things aren't going our way, that we can have faith that your plan is still good and that your story is going to have the great ending that you promise. We're grateful for who you are and what you've done. It's in your name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen.